open your cerebral cortex and shift your lobes into upper beta phase because you are going to have Bitcoin knowledge transmitted directly into your vestibulocochlear. Your host of Bitcoin Knowledge is Trace Mayer, an early Bitcoin advocate since it cost a quarter, but this is not intended to be investment advice. A doctor of jurisprudence, but this is definitely not legal advice. And an investor in core cryptocurrency infrastructure, including Armory, BitPay, Kraken, and Mitagio, but this is not a recommendation of those services. Here, you get fed via direct mind download with pure and free Bitcoin knowledge. Okay, welcome back to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast. We have an excellent guest today, Miles Cohen. He's CEO and founder of Tillit and also a partner at, what is it, Bailey and Mark, Marquette? Bailey Duquette. Bailey Duquette. Go ahead and give us a little bit of your background. So, first of all, thanks for having me, Trace. It's sort of a nice honor to have been followed up on so quickly after the conference earlier this week at New York Law School, of which I am an alum, and that sort of explains the first piece of my story. I'm, I'm an attorney, practiced for a number of years at a firm that eventually ended up being called Dentons. I joined a firm called Sun and Shine that then went through a number of acquisitions and mergers and brought on other attorneys and went from 600 attorneys to around 3,000 by the time I left at the beginning of this year. Uh, my focus there was sort of a split between a fair bit of commercial lending and uh, the private equity group doing a lot of mergers and acquisitions deals, a lot of private company securities related transactions one way or the other. I also, many years ago, was actually before law school, was a professional musician and during those days Moonlight is a programmer and had sort of a little bit of a tech inclination and you know those forces sort of collided when at the middle of last year, I started looking at what was going on in Bitcoin, sort of only seen it peripherally. Uh, that picked up pace uh, right in the, the end of last year when I went on a vacation, had some time to read Sadish's paper, sort of really poke around in the Bitcoin talk forums and was just completely floored by what was going on. And it all sort of came rushing into me that I said, it's time to, you know, for a change of pace. So I left the big law firm, joined Bailey to catch here, simultaneously formed Tillit, where we have been exploring uh, a couple of I think they're all loosely related one way or the other. Some of it derives from the smart contract concept, whatever that may or may not mean. And there's a lot of definitions about what constitutes a smart contract and particularly what it means to an attorney. Uh, You know, corporate attorney has a lot of ideas that, well, it'd be nice if this contract could always be assured to be executed exactly the way it was written. What would that mean? What benefits? uh, And how can we make that a reality for the, the types of applications that I became familiar with as an attorney? Adam Back, he's he's actually cited in Satoshi's paper, and he's talked about this concept of programmable trust. And with the way the Bitcoin protocol works, we're going to be able to build out these smart contracts. Now, that's what you're doing over at Tillit, or, or at least wanting to do. It is, and it's funny. Like I, like I alluded to, I think the definition of smart contract is uh, somewhat malleable, to use a you know, potentially unpopular term in, in the light of Bitcoin. Uh, and as we you know, kick the tires on, on some use case ideas, that's sort of what we're finding. The concept of programmable trust, I think, is very apt. Um, the name Tillit actually is a Norwegian word for trust. And that was deliberate because one of the things that at least I feel and have felt strongly since I first started learning about this space is that what's actually going on here with the decentralized ledger technology is effectively just a reallocation of trust from parties who you know, traditionally held that you know, trusted role to somewhere else. 
you know, very fundamentally, the, the idea of the decentralized ledger is, you know, you don't have to trust that I kept my books right. You just have to trust that the miners have done the right job. Trust didn't go away, and I know there's a lot of strong, and I happen to you know, agree with it, uh, suggestions that because of the way the incentives work, we should trust the miners. And I think that's probably right, but it's probably a good idea to just once in a while at least acknowledge the trust is still there. It's just now some, somewhere else. This is particularly interesting in light of the side chains um, in the white paper that just came out this week, and it's actually explicitly acknowledged in there is that these incentive issues might get a little more complex uh, as you ask the miners to participate in one or multiple side chain you know, validation roles. Um, but in any event, we view that with this new tool available, whether trust goes completely away or simply reallocated somewhere else, and by moving it around, we can reevaluate good number of traditional trust relationships. And distributing that trust. That's right. As opposed to centralizing it, like with our current system. Exactly. Whether it was once centralized and that can be moved either to the periphery or to multiple actors, I think it's just, it it is going to be a worthwhile effort to systematically evaluate existing trust relationships. Many of them are easy to identify. They're explicit. Uh, on an escrow arrangement, I'd, play an, I'd pay an escrow agent to hold on the money, you know, two parties pay an escrow agent to hold on the money until some condition occurs, either we both agree or some period of time lapses or whatever it is. And that condition could even be determined autonomously through an oracle, oh, like, right. like exactly. cited in the white paper. If you're using a smart contract idea, yes, but you know, before you even get there, it's just like find a trust relationship. You know, the classic case, I pay a bank to act as an escrow agent and you know, there's some rules about when the money comes out and who it goes to. Many trust relationships are implicit, and these also can be very significant, though, and, uh, and show up in a lot of places. One example relates to something we looked at at the beginning of the year, which would come into play putting equities on a blockchain. But again, coming from the private company security space, my first thought was, well, use already an available exemption from, from the SEC's uh, registration rules. And you've got you know, people who have Regulation D, the rules promulgated they're under, which was really the common way that private company stock is sold today. We're all waiting. Uh, you know, I'm not sure how much longer. We'll, we'll get crowdfunding regulations out of the SEC some point in the future, which will have you know, some new exemptions that make it available to sell securities to people, you know, non-public securities, rather. This is in, in contrast to just registering the securities and doing an IPO and listing the shares of NASDAQ. In that context, you're very likely to find a whole bunch of transfer restrictions on the stock, which are you know, sort of very unlike, you, know, you and I shouldn't have any restrictions if we're buying and selling an Apple stock, right? I just wake up one day and decide it's time to sell, and they put an order, you have to be looking to buy, there it's done, it's executed, you've got the whole clearing settlement system that you know, also has some potential attack you know, uses in the smart contract space, but you know, there's no restriction. Private company stock is frequently, you know, the initial investors all tied up in various ways or the other, rights of first refusal, drag-along rights and tag-along rights that uh, impose all sorts of restrictions and rules on how this stock can move among us or among new actors, and they're all enforced by contract, treatment of the stock or the or shareholders agreement or something like it, and the implicit trust issue is that we all have to sort of trust each other not to violate these rules because there's a cost to sort of police people to make sure they aren't violated. And then if you do discover it, we're going to go haul something into court. And, you know, even if you end up where you ought to be, it's expensive and time-consuming and risky. And, you know, that cost comes out somewhere and it's sort of, it's implicit in what, you know, the discounted cost of security that, you know, there's some danger. And smart contract capabilities where, you know, we can put equities on a blockchain and infuse within the blockchain or whatever ledger you're using 
these types of restrictions and rules, suddenly the risk of violation is gone. You know, there's an example, again, the trust that I had to put in my other stockholders that reallocated perhaps to the miner or whatever system it is that's, you know, enforcing That's verifying. That's, that's right. coming up with the distributed consensus exactly. blockchain. I have to trust that they validate the rules correctly as I've agreed, but for reasons we sort of mentioned earlier, I think that's pretty safe to do, at least in, in the first instance. And by doing it, we should make the whole system a little more efficient. Now, I know there are people who are trying to bring to light sort of completely public markets with equities on the blockchains, and you know, that we may get there. Um, I think the regulatory hurdles are you know, make. <laughs> yeah, that's a big mess. People today have issues with uh, you know money transmitter licenses. Those pale by comparison to the to the securities issues. Yeah. I mean, you've got both state and federal law. You got like blue sky. You got all types of. Uh, yeah, I think a lot of people very much underestimate both the civil and criminal implications of both state and federal securities laws. And they're very broad, like under the Howey test. Oh, absolutely. The, the Howey test, which you know, asks, answers the question, what is a security, you know, was broad by intent. That comes out of the Supreme yeah. Court decision. And, and then the other Supreme Court decision, that the 33 Securities Acts that substituted caveat emptor for full and complete disclosure. Correct. So, I mean, between Howey and the no longer having caveat emptor, I mean, this... Puts right. a lot of burden on these "quote unquote" issuers of securities. This is something that cannot be overstated in this space. I know it's an extremely exciting time, and, and it should be. You know, the, the, the ability to create these markets and issue these—they might be security. I know people are trying not to issue securities, but as you alluded to, things like how we test are broad by intent, and it's a very easy hole to step in if, if you're not careful. That said, the promise of this is large, and you know, I'm glad that people are pushing the envelope there. I guess my first biggest you know, feeling about it is that the tech probably isn't the hard part. And you know, building a platform that, that enables this to happen, a company or somebody to issue a token that eventually ends up being a security, whether intentionally or just because of that's how the world use it, and then for it to be traded is you know, not that earth-shattering which sort of goes to another part of what I've been trying to do internally with Tillit as I look at the space, which is you know, ask the question, just because this is possible to do on a decentralized ledger, is it something that really makes sense to do? Mm-hmm. And I don't think the answer will always be yes. Now, you mentioned there the tech might be the easy part of all this. We, we were having a discussion about the UCC and like lean attachments before the interview. I think that that might actually be a very difficult problem to solve from the tech standpoint. Can you perhaps go into a little bit of the background about like UCC and when we're talking about like this chain of title on Bitcoins? Well, one is like whether somebody can even own a Bitcoin and like what the Bitcoin is, because I mean, it's governed under the MIT license and everybody's got a copy of the blockchain. So you could assert that everybody owns all the Bitcoins and there's no way to really prove that you don't have a private key, uh, which is, another potential problem under the 521 contempt power with bankruptcy. So perhaps you can go over a little bit about like the UCC, how that applies with attaching assets, securities, like how we're tracing our, our bundle of rights uh, when we log into our E-Trade or our interactive brokers account and it says we have 100 shares of Apple. Like 
what do we really own and how do we figure that out? Like, can you perhaps give a little, like, flesh out that skeleton a little bit so for I'll us? So I'll do my best. It actually is that, that covers a rather wide um, number of discrete rules and, and sources of the rules, different acts, different laws. I guess we could start, the first instance, with just Bitcoin itself. You ask the question, is it possible to own a Bitcoin? You know, the MIT license governs a source code. The fact that we have really by convention agreed to treat the entries on this ledger as Bitcoin and use them as currency. If you sort of back up from that, all it is, is it's just the result of some math. You know, it's deterministic and we can prove you know, the satisfaction of certain conditions. But it's only when you and I decide that the result of that proof is going to be called Bitcoin and used as currency that it actually becomes a Bitcoin. Which would be subjective value theory. It only has value because we as individuals are actually valuing it to have Precisely. such. And then you can support it with arguments as well because it's scarce and we know it has... Well, that might be why we decide to value it. But exactly. it's not, it's it's not like it's not like anything has intrinsic value, even gold or wheat. Fair I mean, we, we as individuals have to value it. So to the question of whether you can own the thing, you know, the MIT license, I don't think you could argue, says that you know, it's owned collectively by anyone who's ever... Everyone, anyone who ever downloads the code, I'm not sure. And another sort of view on that is like, imagine that you know, you've got some Bitcoin on deposit and, you know, in an exchange, the exchange fails and you show up. I don't think you would, for a second feel that you were doing something weird if you asserted a claim to bankruptcy as a creditor. You would feel fully that you own that. And we've got other theories like unjust enrichment or oh, sure. uh, detrimental reliance. But those all even would still turn on the question of that you owned it in the first instance, right? Like uh, you were unjustly enriched because you know you ended up with this asset that I believe that I owned, or, you know, whatever that may mean. So I think that's one of the easier questions here is there's someone to own. And I know people try to parse it and say, well, I only control the address, you know. Or I hold the Bitcoins. Yeah, like yeah. the bit license even uses phrases like hold. I think the, 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 the terminology hold is not challenging to, you know, the, the legal system today. That, you know, there's plenty of abstract definition or, you know, implications of holding. Most things we own, we don't hold physically and pick up, nor could we. But we're usually able to prove that we don't hold it. Not so much. We rely on someone else to tell us that. Like, how can I prove that I don't own a share of Apple stock? Well, the the share of the Apple stock would be titled in your name, or it would be in your E Trade account that's I with your name, or you things like that. To be able to trace like, somewhere. Like, like for example, Mr. Miles Cohen, he has on good authority a hundred thousand bitcoins. Okay. You cannot prove that you don't have those hundred thousand bitcoins. This is true. I'll give you that. Um, and uh, you know, I guess you're going to get to the point where. It, you're concerned it's easier for someone to sort of make a false accusation and I'm sort of stuck on the bag. Well, I, I mean, well, like well, I mean, there's that, but it, I guess it gets to a different, like a different, and maybe it's just the completely disruptive nature of Bitcoin that the private keys to the asset or the wealth are, are literally controlled by an individual as opposed to controlled under a governmental legal regime because the title to the table is controlled under our property rights legal scheme, whereas the Bitcoin network doesn't care what the law might say. You either are able to solve the math problem or you can't to move those Bitcoins. If a judge were to issue an order that said that these Bitcoins have to move from address A to address B, well, if he doesn't have the private key and whoever does have the private key is not cooperative, those Bitcoins aren't going to move. Fair enough. I think we can draw some maybe not really 
promising or helpful analogy, but from uh, you know, bearer instruments of all sorts. It's always impossible to prove that you don't hold a bearer instrument. Right, like a gold coin or, or For a example, bearer treasury bond or and, something. You know, to the extent that there's you know, threats of contempt or whatnot, I mean, these aren't new problems. Um, maybe the magnitude is you know, more dangerous here because you could argue that you know, see that huge you know, pile of Bitcoin at some, currently at some address, then you know, we say you want and you really don't. I don't know. I don't have a good sort of answer to that. My suspicion is those sorts of problems are likely to be few and far between. Yeah, and, and they'll probably be easily folded in under our very flexible common law. Yeah, well, I think what you will do is just look at when did this come up before? How often is it that someone's been ordered to you know transfer ownership of some bearer instrument or asset and said, I don't have it, and someone says they did? You know, I, I think those are corner cases which are just not likely to come up very, very often. But it could strike at constitutional issues. We've got Fifth Amendment rights against self-incrimination in, for the most part, in criminal procedure with the key disclosure cases. I mean, you don't have to uh, disclose your private keys. Yet in England, for example, you can go to jail if you don't disclose uh, a private key for encryption. And in this case, like disclosing the private key is, I mean amounts to a seizure and then we've got civil forfeiture <laughs> of course um, so i mean like i mean we might say they're corner issues but it but it also strikes at the root of some of these elemental principles of of due process warrants reasonable searches and seizures all all of these matters and then particularly applying it it looked like we zoomed out but you know zooming back in like applying it to this chain of law that attaches to securities and UCC and like how that's important for lubricating the gears of commerce. Well, I think it is related and, and there's and this is something that we looked at, thought about a lot and leaving aside the possibilities of well, you own it and you're saying you don't, more significantly is trying to prevent, I'm not quite sure you would describe it as a black box that Bitcoin disappears into and no one can actually. Like Mt. Gox? Yeah, for example. <laughs> Although I think, no, Mt. Gox, most people would claim, no, that is mine. I'm going to try to disclaim or pretend that it's not theirs. Well, yeah, but but there's no way for Mr. Carpellis to prove that he was either hacked or he stole the bitcoins himself or absconded with them or or, or just lost them. I mean, fair enough. But, you know, at some level that may not matter much, you know, because really at the end of the day is trying to make the creditors whole or at least for a rat in a hole to the extent there are any assets left. But um, the UCC, to get back on that topic, is, you know, is an important issue here. And... The basic idea, and this, this comes into a couple of contexts, if you were just to take any asset, it could be a Bitcoin, you know, before you even get into the specifics, if you were to borrow money from a bank, one from you know, your company, your small business line, um, or you know, many other types of financings, you frequently give a lien on your assets. It's not uncommon, it's a lien on all of your assets. There's a blanket all-asset lien. Um, is, is quite customary. There's many forms of financing that are... Yeah, know, personal specific. guarantee. Yeah, or that, yeah, it goes above and beyond on the assets. Now, you're personally liable, even if you're you know, separated from... Should be separated as a stockholder. But um, the consequence for that are basically you were to default on the loan. Um, uh, actually, more significantly, just default on the loan, but if you were to declare bankruptcy, you'd become insolvent. So not only does your loan not get paid back, but none of your creditors get paid back. Um, and... There's a fight over your assets in the bankruptcy, a properly perfected lien holder. And perfection is another related issue to granting a lien. Sort of, you need both of these things together to prevail to this extent. But if you're a senior, secured, and perfected lien holder in the bankruptcy, you will prevail uh, over you know, who gets the assets. Technically, you prevail over the bankruptcy trustee because 
the trustee is supposed to get control of the assets to use and distribute the creditors. You actually sort of prime them. And there's a few exceptions, and it, it's a little bit complicated, but the basic goal is that I lent you money, you gave me a lien on your assets, everything went wrong, you're now in bankruptcy, I at least get the assets that you have. Now, if it happens to be enough that I'm fully repaid on my loan and there's something left over, then it goes to the other frequently called unsecured creditors. Now, the rules for the way these liens you know, are created or, or attached is the word, and then eventually perfected, have a number of variations that depend directly on what the collateral is under the UCC. And there's you know, several types, several categories of collateral descriptions from some of them are very sort of specific and weird, like commercial tort claims to you know, more easily identifiable things like uh, equipment, um, accounts, which generally means accounts receivable, deposit accounts, you know, your money on deposit with a bank, uh, as another example. You have a couple of close to catch-all type categories, which are very interesting. Uh, general and tangible is a sort of a large category that captures a lot of things. There's also a definition of money under the UCC. Go back to the example, you're holding some Bitcoin, you're holding some other assets as well, and you've given me as a lender an all-asset lien. Uh, it attaches to all of your assets, including the Bitcoin, and I perfect correctly, and perfection, um, again, depends on the type of collateral that you have. Some collateral you need to take possession of, some you have to uh, assert control over, and control is a very defined concept. Some, uh, perhaps the majority, you, file, you perfect by filing what's called a financing statement in, in a public record. And the, the goal is that future creditors or people who do business with you uh, can protect themselves by searching in the right place, either search the financing record, statement records to see if there's a lien recorded, or it's other types of collateral, certificated securities, for example, and they ask to see it and you can't show it to them. They're now on notice that maybe someone else has an interest in it, like me as your lender. So what happens is I create the lien, I properly perfect and now you spend your Bitcoin one way or the other. You send them to some, you know, to someone in payment for something, you trade it for something, whatever it is. Are now, you know, out of your control and someone else's control. Let's just say held for ignoring the potential issue of the term. But now, say you do go bankrupt today after you've transferred these Bitcoin, and I, as a lender and sort of savvy, have some, you know, good guys in my legal team, some technology types, people who understand the blockchain. Uh, let's also assume that you haven't gone through sort of any deliberate effort to, you know, fraudulent like convey. Well, not that. Just say like, it's like coin join or some mixing service or otherwise. Oh, okay. So I can. So you're able record. to track the bitcoins. Let's assume that it's you know, it's only it's been a very clean thing. You held a pile of bitcoin today, and then you bank, you sent it to you know party B over here, and now you're bankrupt. And I'm able to trace it down to him. Uh, under the current rules, I would almost assuredly have a valid claim of the Bitcoin in, in the transferee's hands. And if I can find out who they are and identify you know, who's on the other side of this address on the blockchain, you know, sort of subpoena them, and they would be forced to turn those coins over back into the bankruptcy estate, and they would then be turned over to me as a secured lender. So why are they going to have to turn these Bitcoins back into the bankruptcy estate? Because the rules are, and there's some exceptions we'll talk about quickly, but uh, generally the lien follows the asset unless I, as a secured lender, authorize its transfer free of the lien. You know, this happens all the time when companies sell assets and say, oh, you've got a lien on my assets and selling some. And they go to their lender and ask, I need you to, you know, give me an explicit release of this lien. And the buyer will demand it because the buyer will protect it themselves by searching in advance and discover the lien. Uh, and then insist, okay, I'll buy them, but you need to get the lien off of it first. So then the lender, you know, probably the, the borrower is going to have to pay down some portion of the loan or otherwise make the lender comfortable for releasing this collateral. But remember, it's the lender's collateral. So 
makes sense. The borrower should not be able to unilaterally somehow divest the lender of this interest. Otherwise, what's the use? Well, other, other, yeah, I mean, otherwise the lender's going to require a lot more capital or a lot higher interest rate or whatever. Correct. Now, because that's sort of what people expect in the lender-borrower relationship, the UCC was drafted to sort of accommodate that and, and, and you know, build in those rules. So if you didn't ask my permission as a lender when you sent this Bitcoin, the lien didn't come off of them and they stay on, you know, it stayed attached. Your transferee could have protected themselves by searching the financing statement records and discovered this, um, this lien, which again is what happens today, but it's not customary when people are giving trading money, for example. Let's just say that you take change back from a merchant, who, you know, a small store. From the hot dog stand. I mean, yeah. it, should that change be encumbered? And the answer is, you wouldn't expect it to be, and it's much too burdensome for you to be searching financing statement records. So to accommodate this sort of economic reality, the UCC has specific rules to strip liens from money as defined in the UCC for precisely that reason. Because you, as you know, taking the money has changed. You can't. It doesn't make any sense to have you trying to search or otherwise protect yourself from this. So. Provided that you and the hot dog guy aren't you know, acting in collusion to try to defraud me as the lender, you take that, that money, that change, free of the lien. And this is codified and explicit in the UCC. But Bitcoin, under almost any you know, de- way you read the definitions, will not be money. And as a consequence, these liens for rules aren't applicable. So, and is that largely because money usually refers to legal tender? It just, if you just open up, I should have actually brought one here. If you open up the UCC and read the definition of money, it's, you know, paraphrase, it's you know, basically a uh, unit of exchange or account that's, I think the terms are authorized or adopted by a, a government. I'm forgetting the terms exactly, but one interesting potential thing that I actually wrote about on our blog a little while ago was the Isle of Man having put out this RFP to say, hey guys, we can process Bitcoin payments for us for taxes. You know, in which case you might be able to argue that the Isle of Man, by having you know, accepted Bitcoin as tax payment, sort of shoehorned it in as the, you know, under the definition of money. Or, or Judge Mazan in the Trin and Shaver's case, a federal judge saying it was money. Yeah, and but that's it, not a government accepting it. That's very different. Yeah, well, and then, then we've also got the, uh, the Albrecht case where the, where the judge held. Just because they define it as money for the purposes of the statute, right? Because it's sort of, you know, this doesn't mean the government is accepting it as payment for its own, you know, obligations, right? Their own, their own liabilities here. So I don't think either one of those gets you very far down. Again, I wish I brought it for me, but it's easy to look up and you'll see. I don't want this to be like something like a saber rattle or a very scary thing. What it does is creates a certain amount of legal uncertainty. As a practical matter, we made a couple of assumptions in this example, right? That there's no coin join, no mixing, no whatever. It was one transfer. It was all one block. It was very easy to identify. I mean, there's some very serious. Yeah, it, it, it makes it a lot easier in the hypothetical to actually trace down the bitcoins Correct. and enforce it. And you know, in real life, it could be very difficult to do this. But you know, not to be pedantic and you know, wear the lawyer hat too much, but it should be a problem to people, and particularly when you start talking about large institutional financial actors. Oh, you like an ETF? Like it should ETF. be a risk factor. It should be. You know, my opinion would be, you know, disclose it as a risk factor. It boils down to this, quite frankly. I have some Bitcoin right now in my wallet or wherever. I can't say unequivocally that it's not leaned up in someone else's favor. Now, could, I don't have the ability to make that statement. Now, could regulated exchanges or larger institutional money that's coming in, could they perhaps have some type of indemnity agreements that help clear up some of this uncertainty on title? Uh, I guess who, who is the indemnity for? 
Well, favor so I think ItBit, for example, they want to make it so that you're basically like buying uh, virgin coins, kind of like mined coins. They want them to be clean. They want to know that there are no AML KYC issues with them. Let's say that they also wanted to go to another level and provide an indemnity agreement on coins that are sold on their exchange. Then that could be perhaps a potential business model for someone in the space. Yeah, this is a form of insurance, one way or the other. Mine coins are a very good example. You know, those sort of being virgin coins are perhaps the only ones that you can, you know, completely make an unqualified assertion that these. Have oh, coming no from a miner, right? Provided the miner didn't attach the lien themselves, or that there wasn't the lien on the mining equipment. Well, correct. And this is actually interesting because if there was a lien, but that would be the equivalent of them attaching a lien because liens also apply to quote unquote proceeds of collateral. And it's a very interesting question if, you know, mining equipment, if the coins that are mined by leaned up mining equipment constitute proceeds of the, of the lien collateral, then there would be a lien attached to them as well. Um, but again, you would at least know it, right? They can know either, yes, I have a lien or no, I don't. Once it's now filtered through many steps, it becomes very difficult to, to say, I never know who was holding it. And again, over time, these get fragmented into sort of de minimis. Um, de know, minimis amounts. And I, for practical reasons, it's not a huge issue. But now let's shift gears very quickly. So this is Bitcoin. You've got a number of related type of assets. Many of the pure non-counterparty, and I mean that in a sort of legal sense, not the project counterparty, you know, there is no counterparty to Bitcoin. It exists as a consequence of the math. Yeah, we were discussing earlier, it's equity-based, kind of like gold as opposed to yeah. debt-based. Right. Um, I mean, it just there's, it's not an IOU, right? Or it's not representative of anything. It just is. And there's many of these you know, cryptocurrencies satisfy that definition. Um, and you know, XRP on Ripple and all these other altcoins or whatever, they, there's no one on the other side. They just are. But there are many types of assets which are counterparty assets. And again, this sort of has the double meaning in the light of the counterparty project, as well as just the legal sense that there's someone standing behind this thing. There's some potentially, and this is a lot of what we've been looking at until it, um, very interesting ways to handle these assets under the UCC. And there's a definition of security under the UCC that is broader than the SEC definition of security. And this makes it a little bit scary and confusing sometimes, but it is conceivable, at least, that certain of these IOU-type assets, basically, you know, take a Ripple Gateway, for example, deposit dollars with me, I issue you a balance on the ledger. That ledger balance can potentially uh, be treated as a, as a security under the UCC, but not one that's SEC-type security. And there are a whole different set of rules about how liens attach and get stripped from securities is in play suddenly. Uh, one, one of the more significant ones relates to uh, it's called a protective purchaser provision for securities, similar to the way money works, provided you're not trying to sort of defraud a security or don't have notice of an adverse claim. It's called you as a transferee of security take it free of any other interests. This is basically why you don't have to worry when you buy a share of Apple stock on the open market that a lien follows it. Yeah, that the broker-dealer might be a, a malactor or something. Right, or even someone further up the chain where yeah. the other side of your trade. And again, it's to accommodate just the reality. Otherwise, the market wouldn't function. Well, we would just have too many pieces of gravel yeah. <laughs> inside of it, and it would just right. grind to a halt. So because of that, it's possible, you know, in a way, to move these counterparty assets one way or the other, whether they're ripple balances on things or just equity, you know, potential equities recorded on ledgers or even debt instruments that are recorded, but, you know, counterparty IOU type assets 
if you treat them correctly, and this is sometimes it actually is going to require sort of the terms of the way they're issued because you can opt into this treatment under Article 8 of the UCC, but again, it's, it's an explicit opt-in provision in certain circumstances, and everyone involved has to agree to treat them this way, but provided you do, you have some potentially more favorable set of existing legal rules to allow these things to be transferred and used you know, in, in commerce more widely without this overhang of concern about liens following this stuff around. Another related piece of that, and very much what we're looking into until it, it, it is, now let's assume that you do want to put liens on these assets because you want to use them the way well, other assets are used today. People pledge their assets in support of loans for various reasons. You know, Assets move into and through structured finance products where you have very significant concerns about where title is, where security interests are, and the concepts of bankruptcy remoteness and all this that all turn uh, at the end of the day on what these things are in the UCC and, and how they'll behave legally almost always the big concern is how do these things behave in the bankruptcy? That's the, the sort of the end, end scenario that everyone wants to avoid. They want certainty. All right, something went wrong. Someone failed. Some actor in the structure is now you know, in bankruptcy. Who, who, who do these assets belong to when and the dust you, settles? And, and you have to be able to unilaterally bring those assets back. Well, if that's the deal, right? And that's right. structured. Either, either bring them back or not bring them back. Very frequently, what you're looking for in, in many structured finance products is assurance that assets won't be clawed back. Right, that, that they aren't leaned against. But like in some cases, you want to unilaterally bring those assets back. Yep. But in Bitcoin's case, you're going to actually have to have the private key to and bring this those is back. Where, right? you know, from, again, the, the, to the lawyer's ear, from smart contract, you know, we start implicating some of these types of considerations. And many assets um, under the UCC require concepts of control in order to pro- properly perfect your liens. Remember, perfection is a necessary component to prevailing in the bankruptcy. Not just have a lien, but have a perfected lien. And control, in certain, depending on the type of collateral involved, it can, you know, sometimes means things called unsurprisingly control agreements or account control agreements. And, Usually, have to enter into a three three party contract, lender, borrower, and in a bank where a deposit account is held, for example. And these concepts look very strange when you're talking about decentralized ledger because these assets aren't held anywhere except as ledger entries. And the ledger isn't you know going to show up with a hand and sign a contract. So you got to program the rules, shifting control agreements that are required in the UCC to, to be a perfected creditor. The only party around a contract with is the blockchain itself. This sort of abstraction, but at the end of the day, you need to program in the same rules into the code, the smart contract style. And there's a related number of use cases here that we are we are looking into, with a goal of being able to provide assurance to how these assets would behave and how they would move through, admittedly, what are existing sort of products and structures, whether it's lending or structured finance products, whatever they may be. You know, I want to start from there now. At the same time, of course, this new technology potentially enables all sorts of new products that haven't even been envisioned yet because it's possible to manipulate these, these assets in, in, in ways that weren't, it wasn't possible before. But at least today, I think we can draw from what, what the sort of finance world knows and, and works, and we could argue actually for a bit about whether it works and whether it's a good idea, but to the extent that these products exist and are utilized today, if we can figure out how to take out this uncertainty that's related to you know, title, liens, types of issues, potentially we could start seeing these technologies you know, expand into broader uses in, in, in the current economic and credit system and credit markets in particular. And another thing that we're able to do is with this programmable trust, we're able to 
almost with laser-like precision, cut out the different rights or obligations, the ownership. Because that's another problem we've got with our current system is we don't necessarily know who owns what, where it's held, how it's encumbered. I mean, you could so say hypothecation nation. We've got a we've got a run on the good collateral. Everybody wants to know that they've got the 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 asset themselves. The whole seven hundred billion dollar bailouts was all about people running out of particular assets so quickly. So how can Bitcoin be a solution to some of these? problems that we've got in our current financial and monetary system and our credit and lending markets. That's a huge question, I know, but but Uh, you're working on solutions is what we're getting at. Yes, in some ways. One of the, I guess, my first observations of this, and I actually sound like a little bit of a naysayer here, but is that... You know, it goes to what I said before. Just because you can decentralize something, you know, doesn't mean you should. Not because it's a bad idea, but what do you really gain from doing it? And many of the examples you were just talking about, you know, concerns during the bailout, or particularly actually during the sort of you know, critical hours when when Lehman failed and there was this you know, massive panic about who was exposed and where. Trillion dollar bankruptcy. Right. You know, the these were not so. I mean, the, a lot of the problems. Uh, weren't because they were, that they, we didn't have the tools to identify who was owning what. It was just that they weren't required to use the tools. And as a consequence, a lot of what came in Dodd-Frank now with mandatory clearing concepts were you know, directly derived from that, you know, stemmed from it, is the concern that we can't have all this unknown liability, who knows who owes what where, and this huge complex web of chains of of obligations. Yeah. Warren Buffett calls it a daisy chain of yeah. like financial weapons of mass destruction. Yeah, absolutely. You know, but that didn't happen because there was no way to record it, just because there was no requirement that it be recorded at all. This wasn't a consequence of a ledger that failed or that was manipulated or whatever. It just these things weren't recorded on the ledger. So something like Bitcoin or any other decentralized ledger being available doesn't immediately have anything to do with that until some other rule law comes into play requiring the use of the ledger sort of by itself in isolation bitcoin can't affect it you know but what we have though is sort of an environment where the whole experience is fresh in a lot of people's minds and if bitcoin and you know uses of, of these ledgers generally can be advocated in advance that uh once you know can, can basically help reconcile the ownership of these things once people are forced to put them on letters one way or the other, that's when it does get extremely powerful. We will need the regulators to go hand in hand because right now, quite frankly, you know, there's, there's been a couple of years where the mandatory clearing requirements are now in effect and they're all being forced on the swap execution facilities or other places. Bitcoin has not addressed any of those now required recording regimes yet. We would have to disrupt what spread since the, the financial meltdown to, to take the place and you know help address what are admittedly very real problems. But there's now already quasi solutions for some of those problems. And it's, the question is: is what Bitcoin and other ledger technology, you know, what it's capable of doing now, is it better enough? Is it going to you know, improve on what's already in place? And it's fairly recent. Some of these new clearing processes. I don't know the answer to that. I think you can articulate a case where it actually it should be better, right? If you really have one common ledger where all this is happening and you know the auditability that that entails and transparency and whatnot, you can certainly imagine how this is superior to almost any other approach. 
but it's going to require so many simultaneous moving parts. And I'll go back to what I said before. The tech isn't going to be the hard part here. We'll make the ledger available. We'll make the tools, you know, and particularly some of the things like the, uh, the two-way pegs and the side chains are becoming very interesting potential tools in this model where it's possible to lock up assets and have you know, other representations of them being manipulated in different ways. And you can easily imagine assembling you know, some very elegant solutions here, but it's very early in that respect. And you know, I don't even think the example use cases for, for many of these technologies are still you know, rather small in scope. Uh, sometimes feel a little bit like science experiments or whatnot, but they're you know very important predecessors to the more complex and nuanced you know system that that it could be you know for you know again maybe sound a little bit like a naysayer and I don't want to do that because you know look I quit my job to start a cryptocurrency startup I, I clearly believe there is enormous potential here but to tackle the really, really big problems that are frequently advocated or advanced as potential uses for this is, uh, is a long process and probably going to be incremental. Uh, you know, that's the question is figuring out which, which increments first, you know, what, what piece do you bite off and chew and how do you solve that, make it better, make it faster, make it safer, whatever you're doing, which point it's easier to plug in, you know, other actors because there's, you know, the financial system, for better or for worse, it's just extremely complex. It's, it's going to be very hard to just turn off one model and turn on another one overnight. Well, I, you know, not to not to have this go too long. I think we're about over time. But you know, it, we had the Gutenberg Press. It took 150 years before we got the Scientific Journal. Uh, they they made uh, romance novels like 10 years after the Gutenberg Press. So we see where humanity's priorities are as we journey from the swamps to the stars. Uh, Mark Andreessen, one of the central core figures in Silicon Valley, it's the personal computer, the Internet, and Bitcoin. Uh, like you said, we're just at the very beginning of applying financial cryptography to build out solutions to the problems that we have in our current worldwide monetary and financial systems. And you're right there at the center of it. CEO, co-founder of Tillit, partner at Bailey and Markart. How do people listening to the podcast find you? So, well, part of that's going to depend, I guess, on how you post the podcast and if there's any links at the bottom. But uh, Oh, yeah, we'll include those for sure. I, right now, I'm just miles at tilletinc.com and I'm miles at baileyduquette.com. Sort of the two most direct ways, and it depends whether you want to talk, you know, crypto applications or you know, law problem in the space. But, you know, either, either way is a good way to reach me and... Uh, happy to hear from you. Okay, sounds good. Thanks for being on the podcast. Absolutely. Thanks a lot for having me. Be sure to get a copy of the free Bitcoin guide at freebitcoinguide.com. Got a question or suggestion? Record your voice at bitcoin.kn. Don't be shy. To help the show, share Bitcoin.kn with friends, post about it on Reddit, and otherwise, spam the interwebs. Your iTunes comments and five-star reviews are very important to us. Please continue tuning in to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast, where we release interviews with the top people in the Bitcoin world. Now take some choline and let that Bitcoin knowledge consolidate.